exactly what what the difference is between uh, philosophy and apologetics? Well, that's a good question. I mean, I think philosophy undergirds a lot of apologetics, but not mm-hmm. all of it, right? Because there there are um, historical cases for the resurrection of Jesus, right? Like you get in Mike Lacona's book, which I, I thought was a great book, um, and and that's more an argument from history. Um, but a lot of traditional apologetics, of course, has it, it, it's a kind of applied philosophy. Um, mm-hmm. it's, it's philosophy in the interest of defending a position. And we get arguments for God and this kind of thing. So what's the difference between that and philosophy? I, I, I think there are going to be fuzzy boundaries. Um, when, when you do philosophy, you're exploring a problem. And you want to follow the evidence wherever it goes. Mm-hmm. And when you do apologetics, your interest is, is in persuasion. Mm-hmm. And so you, you, um, you apply your philosophical knowledge to the case in point. A, go, a good example. Now, that can put people off. They can think, well, you should never do apologetics. Because it's a you know it's kind of a biased enterprise. Well, right. think about think about the difference between a physiologist who researches, um, say the the um, pulmonary system in a lab, mm-hmm. and and a medical doctor. Right, the medical doctor is interested in the applied science. I right. I, I want to employ the research in order to diagnose and prescribe a healing treatment for you. Mm-hmm. Medical doctor is not interested in exploring all the nooks and crannies of pulmonary research. Um, and, um, but, there, but there's nothing suspect about the work of a medical doctor. It's an applied science. And apologetics mm-hmm. can be an applied philosophy where, where we take what we, what we know and what we thought and we say, oh, this could be helpful in persuading this person mm-hmm. and, or, or building a case for the plausibility of the Christian story or something like that. And um, the more philosophy you know, the better able you are to sift through what are good arguments and bad arguments. Right. But... To be a good apologist, you need more than philosophy. I think the best training for apologetics is to do lots of evangelism Mm -hmm. and actually to be in conversations with people who don't yet know Christ. And then then you learn how to ask questions and try to understand a person's concerns so you're answering the right concern. It's kind of like the doctor. The doctor has to diagnose before she can say, well, it sounds to me like you've got um, a mild case of pneumonia, mm-hmm. right? And, and so she's got to listen to your lungs. She's got to, maybe she runs blood tests. Uh, of course, I have no idea what doctors do. But, but with all the knowledge the doctor has, the, pri- the first task is diagnosis. And that's very, very applicable or analogous to apologetics in that our, our first task is to diagnose what's going on either in a person's mind, life, heart, and soul to the best we can and, or to diagnose our culture. And, and one of our big tools is to ask questions. Mm-hmm. And say, well, it sounds to me like this is really important to you, and let a person tell their story. And we learn more and more, and then, then we begin to think, well, maybe this is a good approach to show how the Christian story can be transformative. Yeah, I think that your distinction about uh, philosophy not being the only thing that goes into apologetics is good because, um, I mean, apologetics can take different forms, really. I mean, I, I think that a, a life lived well is an apologetic too. Um, yeah. And, and I think that, um, I mean, that, that's probably affected even more people than, uh, than just arguing for the faith. Right. Apologetics gets a bad rap because, because a lot of people among Christians, because a lot of people think it's just about arguing. And there are apologists 
or people who are interested in apologetics who who do that. And maybe when we're young, we all do it to a certain degree. Mm-hmm. And and the the key though is no, I, I'm trying to help someone see that the Christian vision of life is compelling. And, and that is a holistic enterprise. It's not just about what a person believes is true, mm-hmm. but it's about what, what seems good. Right. You know, what kind of life can a person imagine? Right. And so this is why your literary aspect to your project is so important to, to stimulate the capacity for imagination. Right. This is one of the big tasks. And, and philosophy is not... The discipline best suited to that. I mean, it can contribute, but I think literary studies and the production of good literature and other kinds of art can be a real stimulus for the imagination that that is a crucial aspect of apologetics. Right. Especially yeah. especially at this time. Right. In the next 50 years, it'll be huge. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that that touches on uh, some of the concerns that you've expressed in your book, uh, Our Deepest Desires, mm-hmm. um, which we'll, we'll move into that now. Uh, yeah, I, um, I, I as, far, as far as I understand it, I, I don't want to take you out of context or anything, so please correct me. Um, your, your thesis is not really in the book to argue for the faith. Mm-hmm. so much as you want to argue for why we should want it to be yes, true exactly okay um so wh- why don't you why don't you just flesh that out just a little bit more for us okay so i i wrote this book to be honest <laughs> as something you could give to a thinking person i was thinking actually of of professors mm-hmm. it's not written for philosophers right it's it, it's but for thinking people, even though I talk about a lot of philosophers and um, just because that's my world. Um, um, and, I th- and, and then I thought, I say this in the introduction, most people I suspect have a view something like this. I'm pretty sure Christianity is false and it's good that it's false. Mm. And I'm going after the second part. I want them to say, wait a minute, it's, it would be great if it were true. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I think this is the next horizon in apologetics. Mm-hmm. It's almost like this, and this isn't quite fair, that as soon as we got, we believers got good at defending the truth of Christianity, people stopped caring if it was true. And, and um, because now the objections are not about the truth of it, but it, it's just not good. People have this story, you know, a narrative about Christianity, and for good reason, given, you know, the polarization of our country, and I don't want to get into a lot of that stuff. Yeah. But this was starting to circulate before all this political stuff went off the rails, that the Christian story is just bad. And mm-hmm. and so what I do in the book is, is, is I, I talk about in the introduction, um, the fundamental questions of what kind of person do I want to be? What kind of person should I be? And then I I take these, I have four sections in the book that talk about these deep areas like personhood and goodness and beauty and freedom. And And I just talk about how the Christian story talks about these compared to secular stories, generally atheistic stories. And, and show that the things we care most about are explained really well and fit in the Christian story, but they're a little odd in a secular story. Mm-hmm. And, and um, so, so it, it, that's the kind of tension. Again, it's tr- trying to raise dissonance right. in a person's life that I, I want to hold that these things are true, yet the things I care about don't fit so well within those things. And here's this other story and it fits really well in this story. So, wow. Wouldn't it be great if that story were true? Yes. Yeah. Um, And just tying this back into the apologetics discussion earlier, um, you know, I, I, I'm a huge advocate for philosophical apologetics. I don't, I don't ever want to denigrate that. Yeah. Um, 
but there, there, I mean, just like everything else, it has its uses and the uses at one point or another will, will run out. Um, so I think that's, that's where, um, literary apologetics Mm -hmm. or, um, apologetics in film or something of that nature is, is going to be the next step. I'm not saying that it has some kind of more importance than philosophical apologetics, but it's just kind of the next, the next, um, frontier in a way. Completely agree. Yeah. So, I mean, like when you read the Narnia series, um, I mean, besides the fact that magic is fun and, you know, I mean, it's, it's a very like uh, blissful world and, and all that. Yeah. I mean, you also want the things that the book asserts, the things that it assumes, the things that it wants, its ends. You want you want those to be true. And could, I mean, could you really have that in a, in a secular narrative? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I'm not really sure. Yeah. So, so yeah, I, I, I really do. I, I appreciate that you've, you've not just stopped at making a case. Right. And that, but you've also seen that we need to go farther and say, mm-hmm. you need to have motive for, yeah. for this. Uh, you need and to want it to be true. I think, I think this is going to be the first step. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're, we are entering a, a, a time and, and we've been, you know, you know, you, you made the comment earlier that, that culture is 50 years behind the academy. I think apologetics can be like 20 years behind the culture. So wow. it's not that this is brand new right now. Mm-hmm. It's been this way for a while and we're just starting to catch up. Um, right. But they there's, there's a, um, Paul Gould in his book, Cultural Apologetics. Um, mm-hmm. He's a guy you should have on. Um, is, um, talks about re, the re-enchantment of the world. We need to re-enchant the world. And, mm-hmm. and that's a, a, a task for the imagination. And it's part of our posture in the world, which is holding forth the gospel as a compelling vision of life. And, 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 and that's kind of what the apologetic slash evangelistic task is. Mm. Um, so I, th- I think it's essential. Now, it becomes important to recognize, I don't, I don't know the right way to say this. There's a kind of limit to what the arts can do. Yes. And the arts get very bad if they're overly didactic, mm-hmm. you know, they're trying to make the point. Right. You think about, um, you know, blatant allegories like Pilgrim's Progress, which are great works, but but that's not compelling. Mm-hmm. And so, so in the last 70 years, Christians have been um, up and you know, maybe there, there is a place where art had to be justified by giving the answers. Mm-hmm. And that makes for very bad art. Yes. Um, and But art, ha- the arts, literature, film, painting has a role of, of, of expanding the imagination and, and, and stimulating the question mm-hmm. that, that, is crucial and and in a sense that's what i mean in my view that's what good art does Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. you want to you want to think how do how do i display some reality about being human in in this world in a way that stretches the imagination, um, stimulates the question. Right. Um, entices the desires and, and you leave answering the desires and answering the questions to someone else. Right. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that this, this highlights, um, the need for both philosophical apologetics and, um, apologetics in the arts. Yes. Um, you know, like, 
I, I don't want to I don't I don't want to oversell exactly what artists can do. I think that a lot of bad Christian art has been produced today because we don't have the philosophical uh, knowledge or underpinnings behind what exactly we we write or we film or uh, however you want to say it. Um, uh, yeah. So, I, I I might I might say I think it's more a matter of. Um, A lot of Christians have been very suspicious of art artists, and so Christian artists have to, in a sense, put the bumper sticker on so everybody knows that they're truly Christian. And when you put sure. the bumper sticker on, you undermine your capacity to raise the question and expand the imagination. Right. Um, and so, so I'm not sure it as I think the philosophical underpinnings can be really helpful. Mm -hmm. um, the theological underpinnings, you know, the more we can think theologically in a deep and robust way um, that can be fertile ground for pro artistic projects. Mm -hmm. But I, I think Christian artists until recently, relatively recently, you know, maybe the turn of the century have been, um, have, have felt like they don't belong. Mm -hmm. Right. They kind of straddle two worlds mm -hmm. and, and, the church has been very suspicious because, you know, artists are weird and, um, and we have to make sure you're a Christian, yeah. you know, so why don't you do, why don't you write about this? Yeah. And I actually think there, there hasn't been a better time to be an artist, a Christian artist mm -hmm. in the last hundred years than right mm -hmm. now. I mean, because there's, there, speaking of a renaissance, there's a, there's a, I think there's a huge renaissance in the arts among deep, serious Christians. Right. Yeah. You know, Mako Fujimura, the Japanese painter? You know, I think I've heard the name, but I, I don't know of his work. Yeah, you should. He's written some books. I used one of them in my doctor of ministry um, mm. seminar, but, but uh, he's written helpfully theologically on the arts and the role of the arts. And um, there's just a lot of good stuff happening. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. And I, I appreciate that that pushback. I, I, I don't, again, I don't want to oversell exactly what one can do over the other. Um, in my own writing life, and in the lives of the writers that I that I work with, mm -hmm. um, I think that there's like a danger to be like to want to push the boundaries and to relate to people um, mm -hmm. to, to make it so accessible, excuse me, that in a way um, the accessibility of it kind of pulls you in mm -hmm. and then you start your moral convictions start to erode. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think, I mean, in that way, like the church has kind of a, kind of a good point about, about that. They, they don't want to um, like for the sake of producing good art, they don't want your, they don't want to sacrifice your soul. Right. Um, so, you know, uh, that, that that's something that I that I really struggle with because my own writing is fairly dark and influenced by by uh, fairly uh, by writers that write fairly heavy stuff. So I mean, do do you think you could say anything to um, like finding that balance? Yeah, I I might be able to. Who are the writers that influence you? I'm just curious. <laughs> uh, well, um, Cormac McCarthy is, is, in terms of style, he's probably my biggest influence. Okay. Um, and oddly enough, I mean, as far as I know, his, his his writing mirrors the King James version. That's where he derives a lot of his stylistic conventions. Oh wow. Yeah. Um, oh, so my friend, my friend Dave at Yale in the Religion and Literature Masters. Um, he teaches a class on apocalyptic literature. They read Cormac McCarthy. Yeah. Part of that. Okay. Yeah. Well, <laughs> apocalyptic oh. literature that, that fits him very well. Um, yeah. I so, haven't read any of it, so I, I feel ignorant. Okay. Um, so how, how to maintain a balance. I, I think this is, there's some principles and, and then there's some strategies. I think the principles have to do with you. You've you've got to cultivate your relationship with God. 
mm-hmm. and 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 the strategies are going to be you've got to be in a community of Christian artists mm-hmm. because I mean I don't want to exaggerate this point but only only other artists are going to understand what you're trying to do mm-hmm. and, and to speak into your life mm-hmm. I think you also have to be connected to a local church and serve mm-hmm. in a local church so you see the broader you're connected to the broader body of Christ. Um, but you really need some people who are in the artistic um, enterprise and can hold you accountable. Right? And then when, you, when, you're, when you're writing, the dark stuff, you, you can ask, you can, I don't, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Um, you, you, you ask, maybe you ask yourself questions like this. Does this flavor serve the story mm-hmm. or is it voyeuristic? Right. right? Exactly. And, and I, th- I think the artist can write things that serve the story. Now, now, if you find yourself going down a road where it's like, okay, this serves the story, but I'm still deeply uncomfortable. You might decide that's not the story you should write, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I mean, and but but you and because because the goal of uh, I'm, I'm trying to be really careful not to overgeneralize, um, <laughs> partly because I'm, you know, more ignorant. On the on the arts things, um, for the most part, your goal is not edification. All right. Now, there there is a kind of literature that's edifying, you know, light stories, you know, um, like Jan Karen, her stories about this Episcopal priest, which are, you know, they're not great literature. That it's, it's not horrible writing, but but they're pretty edifying and they're light and they're fun, and and nothing wrong with that. But when you're writing, you know, maybe the difference between fiction and literature, there's a vague difference that I'm talking about. When you're writing literature, you you want everything to serve right. the story. You you want to be able to evaluate, okay, have I gotten myself in a place where this is not a story I can tell? Right. Because what serves it kind of grinds on my soul. Mm-hmm. And that decision is going to be in part um, different for different people. Right. So it's like, what kind of movies do you watch? I can't watch dark movies. Mm-hmm. It's very hard for me. It's not. Mm-hmm. It, it's not a conviction. It's just. It's just a sen- sensibility I have. Okay. Um, other people can watch dark movies, mm-hmm. and I think, okay. It doesn't bother me that you can, mm-hmm. you know, so, so, and the same thing is going to be do with different writers. There might be topics you think oh, this would be a great story, but I can't write about uh, child abductions. Like I can't read a book about a child being abducted. Mm-hmm. Um, not that I have any experience with it. I just, right. I just can't. Well, that's not virtuous. That's just, it's kind of like, I can't run a mile without dying of a heart attack too you know it's just a matter of who i am <laughs> me either um, yeah. so no i, I that, that's that's actually very helpful and, it, and it's something me it's personally helpful to me to to think through that um one of the one of the things that i i try to promote um as far as like with my writing community and such um is the reminding them that your worldview governs your creative output Right. Um, and so it's, it's important for you to focus on keeping your worldview intact and orthodox. Yes, but, but you don't, your book doesn't have to express your worldview. That's true. Yeah. You think about Kierkegaard and he wrote these books under these pseudonyms and the pseudonyms were in a specific place that ultimately Kierkegaard rejected. But he was mm-hmm. trying to lead his audience, his readers, into this experience of confronting the despair of a certain view, so they would be open to 
the gospel, basically. And, and so I, I think it's perfectly legitimate to write a book whose tone or the narrator or is, you know, some kind of nihilist or, you know, sociopath. Um, and even though your worldview is a biblical worldview, um, you are doing this so, so that people can enter and then you're trying to lead them somewhere. And, and your worldview is what, is what influences where is it you're trying to lead them. I see. Yeah. I, I think. No, no, that, that looks, that's extremely helpful. Um, yeah, that, that the worldview will govern exactly the end of the book. Yes, yeah. As in the goal. Um, yeah. So yeah, that 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 helps me immensely. Um, and as as much as I, <laughs> I could talk about this all day with you, um, sure. but you know, I, I know that you're on a, you're on a schedule. So, um, let so I, let's write this back to you, to your book uh, okay. on, on desires. Mm-hmm. Um, how how does Christianity fulfill our desires? Well, it, the Christian story and. And, and, and the Christian story is basically the framework of what it means to think theologically, you know, creation, fall, incarnation, redemption, and the new heavens and the new earth, right? That storyline um, takes up all of these concerns. The most mm-hmm. important doctrine, I think, is the doctrine of creation. Now, mm-hmm. when Christians talk about creation, we often tend to get worried about the mechanisms. Like, mm-hmm. is it a young earth, an old earth? Is there some kind of evolutionary, right? All that stuff is pretty boring as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> it, it pales. I mean, I'm not saying it's not important, yeah. but it's much less important than really thinking about the implications of the creation story, that God mm-hmm. made us for his reasons, his purposes. And we're made in his image and given this task to be fruitful and multiply. What is that task? How did God design a world that was receptive to human activity? Um, and, and so much of the meaning of human life comes out of that first chapter in the Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the whole, uh, our whole theology of work starts there. Our theology of creativity starts there because Mm -hmm. God delegated the completion of creation to us. Now we don't create out of nothing, but we are to extend the garden, which means we are to take what's outside of the garden is chaotic. We are to cultivate it. Mm -hmm. And, and so there are, there are all these implications and, um, and a lot of them have to do with things that we care deeply about. Everybody wants meaningful work. You know, people are valuable because we're made in the image of God. We, we have a purpose that's objective and meaning that's well-grounded. I talk about purpose and meaning in the section on persons. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so that makes sense to the fact that the most important thing to us are people. Mm-hmm. Right? You know, we, if, if, if a building collapses, we want to know, did everybody get out okay? And, and cause we care about people, even if we don't know these people. Yeah. Right. And, um, well, that makes sense because people are intrinsically valuable. And of course the incarnation ratifies the value of human beings, even after sin enters the world, that God would become fully human. Right. I, th- I think we, we spend too little time thinking about the imp- the incarnation in our worldview and our thinking theologically. If Jesus was fully human, then he's the model for what it means to be human. And, and then you get all kinds of resources out of what does it mean to live a good, a well-lived life is going to look a lot like Jesus. It's going to have that kind of concern, have that kind of trust in the father Mm -hmm. And um, so, so it, it's this big theological framework of the Christian story, and out of it emerges these values, you know, mm-hmm. 
I frame them in terms of persons, goodness, beauty, and freedom. Now, obviously, goodness, beauty normally gets followed by truth. Goodness, yeah. beauty, and truth. I, I framed it under freedom because truth becomes is, is contentious mm. in our culture. And mm. as soon as we talk about truth, people get into debate mode. Even though in my section on freedom, I talk about how freedom is linked to truth. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so these deep abiding values are simply at home in the Christian story. And so right. then it makes sense that these are the things we care right. so much about. And, and I'm, I don't argue that these are the only deepest values. These are just some of them. Um, right. So the whole book is pretty, is fairly suggestive mm -hmm. um, and, and in a sense, conversational. Yeah. Yeah. I did notice that. Yeah. Um, now, uh, in mentioning the Christian story, mm -hmm. um, there, I, there might be a slight, a slight difference there between um, Christianity feeling our fulfilling our desires and uh, the Christian story itself, the narrative. Um, so would you have anything to say to that? Like, how, how does a Christian story fulfill our deepest desires? Well, that's a good question. Um, I, I use the phraseology of the Christian story because the word Christianity stops people in their tracks. Mm -hmm. They're already opposed. Yeah. And, and, and in a sense, I wanted to, to get around that, that objection. Yeah. Um, but, but, it's also helpful because when we talk about Christianity, we can tend to think that Christ, uh, Christians can think this. We can tend to think about a, you know, a bullet point of things we have to believe. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas as to approach it narratively is much more, it, it's a fresher approach. I mean, a lot of people yeah. are talking this way, right? Um, Tom Wright does this and, and, um, um, Curtis Chang in his book, Engaging Unbelief, talks about the story of the gospel. And, and I think it's a really helpful approach. Um, you know, it's a, it, the, Christian, the Christian story is a narrative. Mm -hmm. And, it's, and, and I, I tell my students, it's, my undergrads, it's not just the story of Christianity, it's the story of reality. Mm. This mm. is the true story. Mm -hmm. God is real, God made us for his reasons. And some of those reasons he revealed to us. So we have a sense of what those things are. Right. We fell into sin, God instituted a plan over centuries to call out a people, to guide them in the way to live. And all of these things give us resources, you know, mm -hmm. culminating in the, in the incarnation and the atonement and the life of the church. Um, but that is the story of reality. Yes. Yeah. I, I love that phrase, the story of reality. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, there, there's something to the notion that the gospels weren't read, weren't written um, like a creed. Right. I mean, they, they were written as stories. That's yeah. and in fact, that's that's a lot most of the Old Testament, um, and a, a large a large chunk of the Bible, um, uh, narrative and poetry. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, that 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 really does hit hit on something, um, and it it does make it uh, more accessible to people, which is obviously what we're trying to do. Um, but there are also parts of the Christian story that. Um, well, they're not, they're not as enticing, um, sure. like God's wrath and hell, um, you know, the problem of evil, such. Um, so what, what would you, how, what, what do we make of those parts of the Christian story that seem undesirable? Yeah, well, they, I, I think um, the first step is to think theologically, <laughs> right? I think it's always the case. Mm -hmm. um, and you think, what, what role does, for example, evil play in the Christian story? Where does it come from? What is God doing about it? And the whole Christian story is a story of redemption from evil. Mm -hmm. so, so sometimes people spring the problem of evil as if nobody's thought about it before. <laughs> and it's like, well, well, 
I mean, I think I said this in the philosophy of religion class. If, if there wasn't a lot of evil, we would know Christianity is false because it's a story of redemption from lots of horrible evil. Mm-hmm. So, and so evil is, is part of the story and it has an explanation and, and that by itself helps make it plausible. And, mm-hmm. and this is why here's a tangent here. I think it's important as philosophers, not apologists or artists, but as philosophers to begin to do our philosophy Christianly and not just theistically. Because the philosophers raised the problem of evil against a pretty generic concept of God. Right. You know, God is all-powerful, all-knowing, holy, good. But that's a pretty thin notion of God. I mean, it's, it's accurate, but it doesn't give us a lot of information. Whereas the Christian story gives us all kinds of information about what God's purposes are. And, and I was reading in John 9 today. It's one of my favorite passages, although there's so many, where the disciples asked Jesus, who sinned such that this man was born blind? What is, was it him or his parents? And of course, it's a classic problem of evil. If, he, if it's about his sin, then why was he born blind before he even sinned? And if it's his parents' sin, how come he's the one suffering from it? Now, I think mm-hmm. in the culture, there was, there was some assumptions that suffering, that there was a direct one-to-one correspondence between suffering and sin. And this pops up in the gospel stories a couple of times, and Jesus always undermines it. Mm-hmm. Well, Jesus said, neither. But it's so that the glory of God will be revealed. Mm-hmm. Right? So it, it's like, no, this evil, the causal question is not the main question. It's, it's the purpose question. Mm-hmm. And, and, um, and so I, I think the Christian, our, our Christian convictions give us resources that are relevant philosophically. And, right. and, and we, we should bring this into our philosophy more. Uh, and same with our apologetics. Right. Um, and I, I'm not very interested in defending kind of a generic theism. I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm happy to do that in a conversation. But I, I'm much more interested in showing that, that the fullness of the Christian story is, is um, the best alternative. Mm-hmm. Oh, so yet we have to think theologically. Um, I, I think we, when it comes to wrath and hell, we, we have to frame our thinking and our conversations somewhat in this way. Mm-hmm. Talking about hell first. Um, there, there are two things that seem to be in tension in the Christian story. God's love and justice and goodness on one hand, and the doctrine of hell. Mm-hmm. Now, we actually know very little about the doctrine of hell from the Bible. Mm-hmm. There are images that are used. In some cases, the image is a lake of fire. In other cases, it's um, kind of exile being thrown out where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Um, and so these are obviously metaphors. These aren't literal. Right. But there, but there's some um, judgment that everyone will go through, and um, some will be lost, whatever that means, which we don't know very much about. Um, but what we do know a lot about is God's love, and justice, and goodness. And so, whatever the doctrine of hell winds up being, it's going to fit into that. Right. And so, I I use. And, and the principle here, which is a, a good principle of interpretation for anything, um, is we use what's most clear to shed light on what's less clear. And we have much less data on the doctrine of hell. Um, and so, you know, I don't understand it, but I know it's consistent with love, goodness, justice of God. Right. Um, the wrath of God is easier. 
and and um, I think because people are crying out for justice, mm-hmm. but there can't mm-hmm. be justice without wrath. Mm-hmm. There can't be justice without judgment. Yeah, right. And and so sometimes when I'm lecturing, kind of in a secular school as part of an outreach apologetics on the problem of evil, which I used to do a lot. I haven't done it in a while. Um, I'll say it this way. God will defeat evil in its entirety without violating human freedom. Mm -hmm. And that's what judgment is about. Mm -hmm. No, no more rapists will get away with it. We, we want it to be the case that no rapists get away with it no child molesters get away with it, that all are called to account. And that's the guarantee, right? The wrath Mm -hmm. of God is that God hates injustice more than you do. Mm -hmm. Now, the challenge is he also hates my idolatry, right? And he hates your idolatry, but, but we can, we can make God's judgment and wrath very plausible Mm -hmm. and, and say, look, if, if, if you claim to want justice in the world, you have to be pro-judgment. Mm-hmm. Now, the advantage in the Christian story is we have a judge who's perfectly knowing, he never judges anyone incorrectly, loving and good. Mm-hmm. Now, we don't want other people to ju- judge us because they're not perfectly knowing, loving, or good. And, mm-hmm. you know, I'm the same way. I don't want them to judge me either. <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah. Th- that was that was really excellent. Um, yeah, so, uh, again, the book is Our Deepest Desires. Um, and, uh, yeah, you should you should definitely get it. Uh-huh. Now, uh, in, and just in conclusion, Greg, um, I, I just want to go over some more practical stuff for okay. Uh, kids who are entering into philosophy programs, whether it be undergraduate or masters. Um, For Christians who are considering a a career in philosophy, uh, is the market glutted? Uh, Is there any real like um, enticement to going into it vocationally? It is glutted. It's a horrible (laughs) job market. It, 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 when I first started getting interested in doctoral programs, I would write letters, this is before the internet, to various doctoral programs, and every one would have a cover letter saying how bad the market is. It's like a hundred times worse now. Wow. It's just so bad. You know, um, and, and we have no idea what the next couple of years are going to be, the post-COVID years. Mm-hmm. Um, how many schools are going to actually close? And um, it's very hard to get an academic job. Yeah. So, so it's incredibly difficult to go into academic philosophy with your eyes open because okay. a, lot, a lot of people start in their early to mid twenties and they're very optimistic. And then they finish their schooling in the early to mid thirties and maybe they have a family and, and it's, it's pretty bleak. Um, so you've, you've got to be, it, it's, I, I don't, I don't know what to say. It's, it's, you've got to really want to do it. If you, if you, if there's something else you can do, um, you should think about that other thing. I mean, that's the bad news. Um, now, that's for college and university posts. That's even true getting hired at a Christian school. Um, there are far more people seeking jobs than there are jobs. Um, mm-hmm. But if you want to be a philosopher and you're willing not to have a career teaching, there are things you can do, mm-hmm. right? You can... You can um, a, a lot of them, you can work in a campus ministry. You know, you get your PhD and you you work with crew or in a varsity and you, you know, have a faculty ministry and, or minister to graduate students. 
Now, a lot of these jobs require that you raise your own support, you raise your funds, and, and, and that's a pain, and a lot of people don't want to do that, and I understand mm. it. Right? I did this for 36 years, and my wife is still on staff with crew, and so she has a support team that keeps mm-hmm. her involved in the ministry. So there's, there's, there are things like that. There are, there are apologetics ministries like Ratio Christi. And um, there are Christian study centers at secular universities. And, and a, a staff member with a PhD can have a tremendous um, ministry there. Many of those require fundraising. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, there's a lot you can do if you're willing to raise funds and yeah. raising funds is hard. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know with crew that you get very good training. Mm-hmm. Part of my wife's role is she coaches people in their fundraising. Um, mm-hmm. And um, so, th- so there are things you can do, especially as a Christian. Mm-hmm. There are, there are these worldview academies. Some people with PhDs wind up teaching in secondary schools, classical se- secondary schools and have a, a pretty fulfilling um, life. A lot of people are teaching at community colleges mm-hmm. and doing really well. Um, but the, but the straightforward applying to a, you know, to Cal State Fullerton and then getting hired and getting tenure. If, if Cal State Fullerton advertises a job, they'll have a hundred applications all with PhDs. Yeah. And that's, that's, that can be demoralizing. Certainly. Um, so, so, you know, it, it'd be irresponsible not to give the bad news. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I, I appreciate the honesty. Um, but as far as like somebody like me or whoever grad, uh, all graduates from Talbot uh, mm-hmm. with the MA in philosophy, as far as like going out and maybe finding like a community college job or something, yep. something along those lines. Mm-hmm. Um, is, is there a bit more hope there? I think in the community college there is now um, it used to be that MA students would teach in community college, people with MAs. Now more and more PhDs are doing it. Mm-hmm. And we've got several alum who have their PhDs that are teaching in the Las Vegas community college system, which is huge. And, and they're having a great time. They, they love it. I was out there for a conference and, and one of my friends who graduated from our program did his PhD at Santa Barbara, UC Santa Barbara is teaching there and, and he and his family love it. Mm-hmm. Involved in their church. They're having a ministry with students. He's, he's doing some creative um, videos on philosophy. So he's got kind of a, um, doing some research. So it's definitely worth doing. And, and one of the things that's happening in the community colleges, as far as I can tell, is the quality of student keeps going up because more and more students are spending a couple of years there before they transfer to um, a four-year university. Mm-hmm. And so you get, you get some decent students. Yeah. Um, so, so now that we see PhDs um, teaching at the community college level. Mm-hmm. Um, well, <laughs> how, how do you, how do the MAs? Um, well, you, find you, in? yes, you 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 got to be aggressive. Mm-hmm. You there there are two major ways. One is um, you join the American Philosophical Association, and you scour the ads when they come out they put out the publication jobs for philosophers mm-hmm. and and you apply to anything that says ma is sufficient okay. um the the other way you can do it and you might do both of these at once some of it depends on if, if you can relocate is you get to know the community colleges that are near you you, you, you kind of drop in to the department mm-hmm. and say, look, you know, I, I, I have my MA. I also, you know, work in literature. And if you ever need an instructor, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd love to be on your list. I live in town. 
And you, you might be able to start by being an adjunct. Now, adjuncts get paid nothing. It's horrible. <laughs> um, and, um, but that's how you build relationships. Right. And you get trusted. And you think your job as an adjunct is to build good relationships, do a great job, and, and posture yourself so people start thinking, gosh, I'd love to have Riley in this department. He does a great job with our students. He's fun to be around. Um, he's not combative. Right. And you, you know, then when a slot opens, you know, they might say, hey, Riley, we got the slot. We've got to advertise it, but definitely apply for it. We'd love to have you. You know, and maybe maybe you can sneak in. That's how I got teaching at Yale. Right? They they needed TAs, and and I got wind of it, and I just introduced myself to the administrator. I said, you know, I just moved here. I just finished my PhD. I'm here. You know, we were registered under the chaplains, um, and I'd love to TA. And she said, well, bring me your CV. And then for about five years, I TA'd a bunch of classes. Well, by then I got to know everybody mm -hmm. and, and I began to say, boy, I'd love to teach a class in this program, if that would ever work out. And, and they had a crisis and needed somebody at the last minute. Yeah. And they called me. And um, so, so you, you might be able to move into a position by being there and winning confidence over time. Now, if you're, 35 and you're married and you have two kids, that's pretty hard. Yeah. Um, you know, cause you'll have to do that while you're juggling some other job. Mm -hmm. But um, it, it, it'd be worth looking into. Right? Right. And, and even if you wind up, you know, let's say Solom becomes a full-time job for you. The part-time teaching is, is really going to keep you in, an environment where you're really thinking about these things, then hmm. you'll learn a lot and it'll be helpful for your work in the, in the journal. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so that, that's an, that's another strategy. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, de I definitely appreciate that. Um, so for our listeners uh, who have MAs um, and are uh, trying to apply, uh, it would be uh, be present um, and be, have relationships. Mm -hmm. So, um, what are some of the pitfalls that you see with Christians today doing philosophy? Um, gee, that's a good question. Um, the two I'm most concerned about, I think are the following, um, it's very easy to encounter theological drift, especially if you're doing a PhD in a secular place, because it, it's not that, you know, the challenge will be to give up being a Christian, but it's what kind of Christian are you? Right. And, and the authority of scripture can get undermined in people's lives. And that's why you need to be a part of a church. You need to be ministering to people. Um, and um, having people hold you accountable—that mm -hmm. that's a big one. And and then the then another one is that the academic, the standard academic world, say at the state university, is a grind. It doesn't care. It doesn't. The machine doesn't care about your personal life, yeah. your family, and so you you have to protect your family. And, and you, you have to set your schedule mm -hmm. and say, well, look, I, I'm leaving at five. And then, I mean, when I was doing my PhD, when I started, we had two kids and then we had three by the end, we got this other one along the way. And, uh, mm -hmm. and when I was writing my dissertation, well, actually, you know, unless I had a night class, I would get home at five and I wouldn't do any work until the kids were in bed. And then I would start working um, because it's like, I can't miss yeah. those years when they're young. Um, 
And as a result, you'll miss certain opportunities. You won't be able to take as many classes, maybe. There are things that can, but, you, but you've got to navigate with all of your commitments um, in mind. Yeah. And, how, did, how did you sleep? Um, when the kids were little, oh my gosh, I slept during class mostly. Um, <laughs> it's like, because our kids are up in the middle of the night all the time. Yeah. And, and it, it was exhausting. I bet. Um, and um, especially the first two years. Writing the dissertation, first three years, writing the dissertation was was easier for my schedule. Mm -hmm. And, and um, because when you're in the class time, you have assignments every week. And so you structure your week and you've got to get this five page paper written because you have to turn one in every week. And, and, and that is really challenging. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know how it is in our program, right? I make you write these papers every week and it's a pain in the butt. And, um, um, yeah, I was exhausted that first year, especially. Yeah. And, um, but, you know, you, you, you've got to work with your spouse to protect your marriage and your kids. If you're married and have kids mm -hmm. and you'll never regret it. Yeah. One of the things Jeannie started to do with me is she would ask the question. It took me a long time to realize what she was doing. On Thursday, she would ask, okay, what do you need this weekend? And I would say something like, well, if I could have six hours on Saturday and three hours on Sunday, that would be really helpful. And then she would say, okay, why don't you take your six hours on Saturday in the morning? You leave in the morning and do your work, come back. And then in the afternoon, we'll do this and this and this as a family. And this helped us I finally realized what she was doing is, is what avoiding the co confrontation of, of expectations. We would plan the weekend when I was going to work and how much work I was going to do. And then I would just stop and, and um, make sure that we had time as a family mm -hmm. and, and, it, and it was good. Yeah. 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 It, it seemed to, uh, all pay off. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, so finally, Greg, um, what would you like to see from the next generation of Christian philosophers? Um, good question. One, one thing that's happened recently among Christian philosophers is when, when the Renaissance began, there were, it was concentrated in philosophy of religion. Mm -hmm. And, and that made sense. Now it's spread into lots of other areas in philosophy. And I think that's really good. Um, so I'd like to see that continue. Um, two things I'd like to see among Christian philosophers is like we talked about briefly, doing our philosophy more Christianly in the sense that we're taking our Christian theology as the framework and not just mm -hmm. a generic concept of God. And this is, this is mostly in philosophy of religion where you talk about these things explicitly. The, the second thing, and, and this might also be a path for people who do a PhD and don't do academic employment, is I'd like to see us generate more public intellectuals, people who can speak into the big questions that, that shape everything that happens. Things like, what does it mean to be human? Mm -hmm. uh, what is knowledge? What is a good life? And, and, and that's going to require more Christian philosophers doing history of philosophy, doing more continental philosophy, um, as well as, you know, analytic philosophers tend not to talk about those topics. The skills of an analytic philosopher can be really helpful, though. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know how you get into that position, but but you know, think tanks, Christian study centers, 
where you begin to write to an educated audience and not just other academics. Um, You know, um, I I think that I think that's an important thing for for Christian intellectuals across the board, not just philosophers, historians, um, artists. Yeah. Yeah, more, more discourse in the public square as opposed to the um, yeah. the ivory towers, as I'd say. The ivory tower or just the church. Right. Right. You know, mm-hmm. we got these three audiences and we need to speak to all of them. Right. But I think we need more people in the public square. Mm-hmm. Right. So. Yeah. Well, Greg, um, I'll, like I, I, I really appreciate you um, and your time. Uh, you know, I appreciate you. Keep yeah. Work. Yeah. Th- thank you. And, and you, too. So, um, yeah, just keep it up. All right. Thank you for listening. Bye-bye. Hey, thanks, everybody. We'll see you. All right. Thank you.